Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Randall Church. We're glad that you're here today. My name is Pastor Milo. If you're first time here, man, we are so glad you came today. Uh, I want you to know a few things this morning. We are in a series in the book of Titus called The Grace Driven Church. So if you want to make your way there this morning, you have a Bible in front of you. There's a black Bible in the pew in front of you. If you're not, uh, you can be uh, following along in a new international version just so that we're all on the same page today if you know where we're at. About a year ago, our staff came together uh, for the first time as a full staff. We had uh, hired Mario and uh, Brian had joined the staff team and so we decided to do a team building exercise and we invited some of the elders to come with us and the staff from uh, Renewal to come with us as well. Uh, we went downtown Buffalo. They have something there called the Buffalo Pedal Tours, uh, which are these big uh, bus-looking things that are powered by bicycle pedals. Have you seen these before? All right. So. Uh, it's designed to be used for uh, things like uh, bachelor parties and different things like that, where you just kind of get a group of guys together and, and you go and stop at all these different parts around the city. Well, we are a church staff, and so we had a little bit different approach uh, than some of the other clientele that generally uh, use uh, these things. And so we went there during the, the lunch hour, and uh, we got lunch first, and then we spent our time making our way around the city, seeing all the different uh, parts of downtown and seeing some of these really neat buildings. And uh, what you learn is, and what we were trying to spend time doing that day was to learn how a team was going to function and how we were going to work together. Uh, if you're familiar with the book, The Five Love Languages, uh, we took a test that day uh, for a corporation or for a company. Uh, there's a test that you can take and they charge you a good uh, sum of money for that to be able to find out what is your love language and so that you can learn how to interact with one another. And so if your coworker, uh, if their love language is gifts, uh, you might give and receive gifts with that person. If their love language is service, you might serve them in that way. Uh, that's what you do for a corporation or for an organization. Uh, there's also a free version of how couples interact with one another. And so that's a one sheet of paper, uh, free printout. And so we use that instead. And so uh, <laughs> similar process uh, where you find out how you interact and work with one another. But for Mario and Brian being on staff for less than two weeks and we're asking them whether, you know, physical touch is something that they're um, <laughs> comfortable with and and what's a, you know, those type of things. So the questions were a little bit off. We had to just kind of make sure that that made sense uh, for everyone there. This is our, our team. So we're coming together as a team. Uh, we, we rode our bicycle bus thing through town and we pedaled through and, and uh, there was times where you come up a little hill and you really had to crank on it. Uh, there was two or three seats on this bus that didn't have to pedal. And so we found out which team players would rather sit and watch everyone else work. Uh, by who chose that, Denise and Mario, yes. And, uh, and so they sat in the back and just watched the rest of us sweat and pedal. Uh, Brian and I, for some reason, had something to prove, and so we sweated like nobody's business, and we didn't get anywhere faster than anyone else, so I don't understand why uh, we worked that way. Um, there's something about coming together. So down to the basics of that, this was a team building exercise for us as a staff, but really it was pretty good to be able to work together and like do something together as a team. The basics of teamwork, my, my daughters are playing soccer and they've been doing that a number of years now. And if your kids are on a team, uh, really there's a lot of things that you learn by being on a team and playing a sport uh, that are good for the rest of life. Uh, but if you've seen a soccer team of, so now my girls are now uh, 10 and 11 years old. So now the game actually looks a little bit like a soccer game. Uh, at ages 
five and six, however, it's a whole different process. How many parents you remember when your kids were five and six and you watched your kids run around the field? There's, there's a ball in the middle and then there's bumblebees just swarming around the rest of it. You could have the same effect by uh, when you get a new litter of puppies and you watch these Labrador puppies just kind of run around in a field and you don't know where they're going or what they're doing, but they're having a lot of fun. And uh, that's basically what it's like to watch four and five and six-year-olds play soccer. But on the whole, when they're kind of running around, you've got to basically teach two things. If you're their coach, you want to teach them two things. Uh, The first thing is that you have a position on the field. So at least when the game starts, if you're going to be part of this team, at least when the game starts and maybe at halftime we'll regroup and talk about it again, there's a spot that you're supposed to stand. This is your square. This is your space. This is your position on the field. And you want them to know that. The game is more fun eventually if you learn how to play positions. It's important to stay on the field. Uh, There are kids who will run to the end of the field and they'll see something going on in the distance and they'll just kind of keep running over and there's an ant colony that they want to check in on or something. And so just stay on the field and play your position while you're on the field. Uh, My son is three uh, years old and he's potty training right now and and I can see him being that kid and some of you had those kids where he just will run off the field and drop his pants if he needs to and, and pee in the woods. Like I can see my kid do it. That's going to be my kid. Um, play your position. Find out where your position is on the field. Stay on the field. The second thing that you want them to know is make sure that you're going in the right direction. Uh, at, at this age, when you're watching those young kids run around the field, there, there's always some kid that scores on his teammate, and he kicks the ball in the goal, and he cheers and looks at his parents, and he's so excited that he scored a goal on his own goal. And so you have to, to talk with kids about pointing them in the right direction to say, that's your goal over there. So you start at the beginning of the game. Find your positions, point them in the right direction. We're all going this direction. Don't get turned around. Halftime, come back. Hey, Reset, set, set things up, we're pointed in this direction. Find your position, play your position. And it's almost like here in the book of Titus, as we're getting into chapter 2 here in Titus, that Paul is the coach. Uh, he's talking with Titus, one of the players, but he's also talking about how to organize the team. He's going to tell them those same things. He's trying to tell them to point yourself in the right direction, uh, that there are positions that you should be playing on the field. And then there's this third one that isn't really something that's part of the game, but we tell kids this as well, is don't bite each other while you're playing. And it's almost like Paul is telling his readers this as well. He's saying, point, get on your position on the field, point in the right direction, and by the way, don't bite anyone in the process. So as you look at this, uh, this morning, I want you to understand uh, this first statement that we're going to put on the screen this morning, and it goes along these lines. It says, when God's word spreads through people, good deeds discipleship and doctrine align. They're all moving in the same direction. Good deeds, discipleship, and doctrine all align. They're all pushing, motivating, driving in the same direction. When God's word starts to work in us and through us, and we start to do that with the people who are next to us, and we are better together in that process, we're going in the same direction, and you'll find that those things align. Scripturally, we hear the term, uh, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Do not be unequally yoked, that, that idea, that word pictures of two oxen trying to pull. But we don't work with oxen on a regular basis, and so that's kind of a confusing illustration. 
Uh, maybe your vehicle, though, if it's out of alignment, you've got four tires on your car, and if there's one tire that is not in alignment, you can look and very easily see that that tire is getting worn down and pulled to the side because it's not in alignment with the rest of the tires. There's three tires moving and, and working together, and there's one tire that's kind of getting dragged along. We've got to play our position, be aimed in the same direction. When God's Word spreads through people, these three things, good deeds, discipleship, and doctrine align. I want to emphasize the word and in that because it's sometimes uh, confusing because a lot of times we think there's this or that. But this is an and, good deeds, doctrine, and discipleship align. There's a book written by Hugh Halters where that is just, there's an ampersand on the front of the book and the word and. And we talk about the church being gathered and the church being scattered at the same time. We, we come together on Sundays, but yes, we are sent out. We are gathered. We do both of those things. I remember when we hired Brian as an as outreach and discipleship minister to be able to do those two roles. There are many people who feel like those are opposites, that, that there's outreach and, and or discipleship. But realize that there is no discipleship without being a missional component, being outward focused, being outreach. If you are raising up a disciple who doesn't know how to share their faith, then that is not a disciple at all. And if you are teaching someone to be evangelistic and to go out and to share the gospel, and yet they have no desire to disciple someone in that process, that's not really evangelism either. And so you've got these contrasts of, of out, outward is, is also inward, and it's all connected together. It's this and. And so when we see good deeds, discipleship, and doctrine Align All of these things come together, work together, play their position, move forward on the field together. And so that before we go a little bit further, I want to say that there are good ideas lead to choices. Good ideas lead to choices. Ultimately, uh, when, you, when you hear something this morning, and I, and I present to you what's being here, laid here in Scripture, there's some choices that you're going to have to make. A choice to say, you know what, that's not for me, I disregard that, it's not necessary. But the reality is, is that sound teaching leads to sound living. And as we get into the scripture today, you're going to see Titus is receiving sound teaching. And so their lives better line up with that teaching. And as we get into our text today, you will see that he's not talking just to one specific group. He's talking to all of us this morning. And so like Paul as that coach, he's coaching the old, he's coaching the young, he is coaching those who are retired and those who are working hard, those who are the, at the top of the food chain in their workplace and those who are the laborers in their workplace. And he is going to talk to all of us this morning. And the reality is, is that that sound doctrine will lead to sound teaching and life change. So what are some of the things that he's trying to teach us this morning? So I got your Bibles now. We're in Titus chapter 2. Uh, beginning in verse 1, here's the first point that Paul is making. Teach the old dogs some new temperament. Teach the old dogs some new temperament. If you have that white sheet of paper in your bulletin this morning, that's a fill-in for you today. Teach the old dogs some new temperament. Chapter 2, verse 1. You, however, must teach what is appropriate and sound doctrine. Verse 2. Teach the older men to be temperate worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in their faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. You know, growing old is the greatest fear for most people. 
Growing old is the greatest fear for most people. And the reality is, is that here in, in the United States, uh, we have Americans living now longer than any other point in history. And yet we nip and tuck. Uh, we get ourselves all dialed up. We get ourselves all these pokes and prods by doctors and physicians. Uh, we take one piece of hair and, and beehive it around our head to make sure that everything is covered up so that we will dye everything, we'll cover everything up, trying not to get old. I'm speaking to you as an old person this morning. I turned 36 this week. <laughs> I feel like I'm on the second half. No, I'm joking with you. Americans live longer than any other time in history. You know, by 2020, there will be 100,000 people in the United States 100 years old. 100,000 people 100 years old. Teach the old dogs some new temperament. When we look at this here, Paul begins with the old men. And he says the old men are to be temperate, which is a word that's sometimes translated as sober. But it's not talking just about alcohol. It is talking about alcohol, but not just alcohol. Sobriety in regards, regards to that, but also in the rest of their interactivity with the world. To have a sober mind, to be in control of what's going on. It asks them to, be, to pull back the reins on his desires. Uh, to pull back on the things that he's pursuing and indulging in worldly practices as an older man is just as foolish as it is when you're a younger man, but as an older man, you ought to know better. And dignified is a word that's used here. It's not a man who decides he's going to wear a top hat and a tuxedo everywhere he goes. Being dignified, it implies that he has a focus on his life that is noble and is pure and is of good moral worth. It shows up on what he watches on television, how he interacts with people of the opposite sex, how he talks about people behind their back, how he carries himself, how he does his business, what he discusses with his peers, and what he uses his time for. Apparently, the older women in Crete were customarily considered gossips and drunks. When you look at, <laughs> I had to move quickly there, yep. The older ladies, that was actually part of the Cretan culture, was for them just to, this was how they spent their lives, was to come together, they'd have something to drink, and gossip about all the people coming and going around them. Some scholars point out that heavy drinking was actually a virtue among the Cretans. And so you have this culture where, where these old ladies sit and they just condemn everyone that moves back and forth around in front of them. And so once their senses start to be reduced, then they just begin to chatter and begin to run off. And so when you see that, putting down others by slandering their character was uncalled for there. And Paul is using this to keep a perspective for you and I, reminding them they were constantly, constantly to be engaged in practices that were God-fearing and in practices that were sacred in nature and serving the Lord with their life and with their lips. The challenge here is for the old dogs to learn some new temperaments. For you and I today, perhaps the culture is a little bit different, but the, the tendency for the older generation is just that. The tendency is that now I've gotten older and I just don't care what people think about me anymore. I've reached this point in my career. I've retired. I've gotten past this and it just doesn't matter what people think about me anymore. I've raised my kids. Now I've got my grandkids and it just doesn't matter anymore. And the, the, the text here is saying don't slack off now. 
John Piper talks about this as he's getting older and his website, Desiring God, and other ways he talks about what it really looks like to be retired. And he throws stones in many ways at people who choose to be retired in a way that just says, I give up, I step back, and I just want to collect seashells on the seashore. He says, in your last days, is this the way that you want to spend your final days becoming face-to-face with the maker of the universe is that you are collecting seashells on the seashore? So in these last days, <coughs> to change your attitude about you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but to change your temperament to say, you know what, these are my last days, and so in them I'm going to pour myself into what God has called me to in these last days. And biblically, we see that example played out. We see guys like Joshua and Caleb who were still just as fierce in their final days as previous. In the New Testament, we see Anna who is, who is there. When Jesus was born, she was 100 years old, and she has been serving diligently. She looks on his face, and he says, this is the Messiah, the one that I've been waiting for and serving still consistently for today. You see, ideas lead to choices. Sound teaching leads to sound living. The older generation, how sound are you living? How close to this teaching are you living? Teach the old dogs some new temperaments. Secondly, teach the young pups some self-control. Teach the young pups some self-control. Verse 4, then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Paul focuses first and foremost here on the home. He dives right in here on the home, and it shouldn't surprise us because that's the very same thing he did a couple weeks ago when we talked about elders and the way the elders were supposed to be uh, selected was to look at how do they lead their home. And so the challenge to young followers of Christ is how do you lead your home? What does your home look like? And that is the focus, the foremost thing that you can be doing is leading your home and leading it well. Paul calls the older women to encourage the younger to love their husbands, to love their children. It's contextually important to see that because often their marriages were arranged. And so this woman had not chose her husband. Very often they would be young teenagers and they're in this relationship. And this author, this author Paul is saying to love your husbands and love your children, even though you might hate the situation that you are in. You didn't ask for this. You didn't look for this. And now here you are and you are stuck. So it's not a stretch to imagine that some of these teenage girls were married off to unappealing men, struggling with their position in life. Yet through Christ and through the effect that the gospel had on their lives, he is working in their lives. He would have the ability to love their husbands and the ability, she would have the ability to love her children. Here it calls for purity. And it's not necessarily calling for purity as in sexual purity, although that is part of it there as well. But it talks about really maintaining a heart purity. You see, young men are also and often pulled away and distracted by what their eyes see and what visually attracts them and pulls them away from their spouse that they should love and adore. And yet it is women who get pulled away from an emotional connection that they have to someone or some story or something that is pulling them away from their husband and the one that they are supposed to love and care for. When it's talking about purity here, it's talking about this purity of heart. They're supposed to be compelled, and that emotional pull and connection should be compelled towards Jesus Christ, and in that, towards her husband. 
And we struggle oftentimes in reading this passage in our modern context when it says, being subject to her own husbands, demonstrating a submission to her husband, not a submission to all men or all uh, men in any situation of any sort, but to her husband specifically, so that that specific husband has his own responsibilities as well, as we see elsewhere in Scripture, to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And so the, the wife submits to the husband in that process of the husband loving her like the church. And then there we see proper order in the home. And then in that, she's going to spur her husband on towards wisdom, spur her husband on towards living out the gospel, spur her husband on towards <coughs> being a leader in the home and motivating him to be a leader in the church, just as Christ is the head of the church. It says here, young men, to practice self-control. It actually says this about all age categories, that we are to practice self-control. And in doing that, this one beer, big encompassing virtue that is there is having self-control. Self-control is not something that we have moved forward 2,000 years later and we don't struggle with as a culture the way they did there in Crete. We most certainly have this as a problem as a society. Young men certainly have this as a problem. Self-control, meaning being able to carry yourself and characterize yourself as having self-control, as being able to be in control of how you act, how you behave, and not getting out of hand. And I'll tell you, it is harder as a young man, to make sure that this is a process. You need older men to be able to grab you by the shoulders sometimes and say, you need to get a hold of this. Self-control is what a massive Buffalo Bills football player has when he picks up his newborn baby for the first time. You see that football player is able to take on the field and take his opponent and crush his opponent. He can take that football and stomp it into the ground. He can do anything like that. He has the power, the ability to do that, but yet he picks up his newborn son or daughter and just holds them gently and is able to withstand and hold self-control. You know, when, when we have prosthetics that are being developed now, they're being able to do more and more and more. The, the power that we have in our hands to grab a doorknob and turn a doorknob and to be able to write with our hands or to be able to do a pull-up or be able to do hard work with a shovel, that is actually something that doctors are still struggling as they are developing prosthetics to be able to, to have that type of pressure within the grasp of a robotic arm. Because the idea of self-control, of being able to do more, being able to uh, withstand and, and create a certain amount of pain or discomfort or crushing strength, if you will, to be able to restrain that and be able to have just a very light touch is something that young men struggle with, that parents struggle with, that senior adults struggle with having self-control, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually as well, of understanding of what restraint really looks like. And we see that here, not as a weakness, but as a strength. Young men are to recognize their propensity for getting out of control with their tongues, their passions, their desires, their ambitions. Young men, keep your head about you. Restrain your sudden impulses to lead with greed, with pride, with lust, with moral impurity. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Put your life in control under the mind that is constantly being renewed 
in the gospel. Teach those young pups some self-control. Thirdly, teach the leaders. Paul is telling Titus, teach the leaders to show integrity. To show integrity. Verse 7. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Christian leaders are to set the pace. Christian leaders are to exercise as much self-control as any of these other young men or the old men or the old women. But in doing so, he, Titus, the Christian leader, should be an example of good deeds, to be an example of purity in doctrine, to be an example for others to follow, to be leading the way, to set the pace. Martin Luther put it this way, because the heathen cannot see our faith, they ought to see our works. Then they will hear our doctrine and then be converted. Because the heathen cannot see our faith, they ought to see our works. Then hear our doctrine and then be converted. If Titus is going to be this leader, and he's a young leader being put in this spot, he's going to be set up elders here in this church in a very difficult situation, a very difficult place, he was going to need to lead with integrity. He was going to need to be above what they were doing. He needed to be in a position where they could not cast stones at the way that he was leading. This is what we should expect out of our leaders in the church. This is what we should expect out of our friends that we associate with. This is who we should be, men, women, as leaders. We ought to lead and show integrity. Modeling for others the way that they ought to believe. Modeling for others the way that they ought to behave. I firmly believe that the church ought to be the healthiest organization in any city. That the church ought to be where people go to find out how to develop young leaders into godly men and godly women. That the church ought to be the place that people are looking to, to be able to see how to lead their company, how to lead their corporation, how teams work together effectively. That programs like Christian Service Brigade would continue to be putting out young leaders, young men who are willing to step forward when the time comes to step forward because they know that these young men can step forward in very difficult situations. That GEMS develops young ladies to do the same. That this church is a place that grows and develops a leadership pipeline so that this is a beautiful thing for the city to be able to see the way that God works in his people and the way that his people lead with what? Integrity. Because whether they realize it or not, just the way that this this, uh, statement by Martin Luther says, even though the heathen may not be able to see our faith is what he says, they cannot shake the fact that these people lead with integrity And in doing that, it finds that they will find Christ and be converted. Teach the leaders to show integrity. Finally, teach the laborers to validate trust. Teach the laborers to validate trust. Verse 9. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show them that they can fully be trusted. Slaves made up almost 50% of the Roman Empire, and the bulk of the workforce, which is appropriate for Paul to consider these instructions, were those who are laborers. And in this term, when we look at this, they were Christian laborers, many of them. And so we need to 
be reminded that their situations varied. Some of them were really well-versed, well-educated. And so in our teaching, we would see them as teachers in our public school systems now. That was the role of a slave. Or they may be doing physical labor, but they may also be doing things like raising the family or being a nanny to the family or, or actually running a business for their master. There's a very, very different, uh, different ranges of what that slave might be doing. Although slavery is still evil and it needs to be eradicated at that time, we need to understand that our modern context of what we've seen slavery within the last few hundred years is, is different than what they saw there today. There were some examples that were horrible of slavery, but there are other examples that are a little bit different than what our mind immediately goes to when we say slavery. That's why we're using the word today, laborers. So if they were still going to have uh, the, the teachers, and these agriculture workers, the domestic workers, the doctors, the teachers, these artisans, all of these fall underneath uh, this overarching umbrella of slavery in that time, how were Christian laborers to respond under the rule of the Roman thumb? They were not to follow the typical patterns uh, that slavery. They, they would argue and badmouth their masters at times. They would pilfer what didn't belong to them because, because they were slaves, they felt like they had the right to do that. They were going to go against the cultural practices of the day. They were going to adorn the gospel and live out this life of a Christian slave differently than everyone else around them. As we look at this passage, whether or not the master was a Christian master, an honorable slave owner is irrelevant to this passage. And whether or not in a modern context, the person that you work for, the workplace that you are in, is owned or run by a godly person or a person with integrity is irrelevant to this passage. You're supposed to work at such a level of efficiency that it would befuddle the Roman slave owners. The same can be said for us. No one should outwork a Christian laborer. No one should have a better attitude, since Christians are supposed to do what? To do all things well-pleasing to the Lord. The Christian's attitude shaped by the gospel must dictate their speech and how they speak and how you interact with one another. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it heartily as unto the Lord. When I served in the Marine Corps, I was... Uh, very young, but it was one of those times where I was just doing my job every day in the Marines, and I would do it in the morning, do it in the evening, and then I would get involved in my local church that was just off of the base. And I got pulled aside by one of my superiors. He pulled me aside and said, hey, I know I understand that you're very involved in your church, that your nights, your weekends are, are there, that you are involved with the kids in that church's youth group, that you are leading things with music and different things like that. It seems like you're very involved, very connected there, and that's great. We don't see that with a lot of our Marines. They don't always get involved off base with civilians and get interacting in that. So we love that. However, there's some things that you should brush up on after hours, maybe instead of being at that church so much. There are some things that you are not doing well here on the job because you're not taking your after-hour time to be able to put some extra effort in there, and your job is suffering because you've gotten so involved at your church. For me, that was a wake-up call. For some of you, you'd say, well, that's just persecution. He's persecuting you for being involved in your local church. And I'll tell you, from the way that it was presented to me, that was not the case. This man was not a believer, but he was not in any way saying that I should not be involved in my church or that I was doing anything wrong or that God was not important and that it shouldn't be important in my life. He wasn't saying any of those things. So if I started waving the persecution flag and saying that he was after me and I needed to stick my neck out and be able to push back and fight back against him, 
I think that would be incorrect. Because really what he was saying is, you say that you think that God is the most important thing in your life. You say that all of this, your involvement in the church is very important, and yet your job is suffering because of it. Do your job and do it well. Doing your job and doing it well ought to be the goal of all of us who are laborers. Doing your job and doing it well is the best Christian witness that you can have in your place, that you would be trustworthy, it says here, that that you could validate trust. When that slave owner looked at this particular slave, this gospel-fearing, God-fearing, young Christian slave, when they looked at him, he would be able to say, I trust him. He's not going to pilfer. He's not going to take from us. He is not going to uh, not use his time wisely. He is going to do all that he can to support us, our family, our business, our organization, and do so with integrity, and I trust him with even more. That is the best way that he could live his faith out, which leads us to our final point. So we're teaching leaders to show integrity, teaching laborers to validate trust, but teach the church to be attractive. Teach the church to be attractive. The second half of verse 10 says, so that in every way they, meaning all of the categories listed above, they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. We live in a culture that is obsessed with beauty. All you have to do is go through the checkout aisle and you just look at the tabloids everywhere around you, everywhere you see having to do with beauty. Go down through the village here in Williamsville and you see how many different places, how many different shops are there, how many different small business owners there are who are going to thrive based on cosmetic or beautifying situations. We live in a culture that's gone crazy after that. If your body isn't so beautiful, these ads, these magazines will tell you how to make yourself more beautiful. The church is called the body and the bride of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is interested in developing a beautiful body, corporately and individually. But he's not going to do it in the way that the the tabloids tell us that we can be made beautiful. He's going to make those changes not with how much makeup you can put on or how many push-ups or pull-ups you can do or not how many, whatever it is, whatever that special drink concoction that you have to drink to make yourself have, you know, or the six-minute abs, whatever it is. Jesus tells us he's going to change us from the inside out. Make us a beautiful people as a bride is committed to presenting us. And Ephesians 5 says, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that the church would be holy and blameless. That's what makes the church beautiful. God wants all of us to focus on becoming his beautiful people. Not the outward facade of beauty that the world sees and just fades away, but the inner lasting beauty of a heart that is obedient to him. When we refer to a beautiful person as attractive, we know that because beauty attracts. But if you've ever been to some of God's most wonderful creations, things like the Grand Canyon or the Grand Tetons or just some of the just fantastic things that we can find in the world that he has created and we find beauty there because what it does is it draws us back to God. And that's the responsibility. A beautiful place like the Grand Canyon attracts people to it. And just the same way, the church, if it is full of people who are attracting others to themselves because of Jesus Christ, it'll attract people as well. 
So those who don't know the Savior are attracted to him because of the way they are living their lives. So our responsibility is to get to it. You see, Paul, he's like the coach. As I said at the beginning, he's like the coach. This is a halftime speech. He's talking to his kids, and we're all a little bit confused, and we're all running around in circles at times. And he's saying, you know what? Let's, let's all be aimed in the same direction. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how young you are. I don't care what you do for a living. If you are a leader, if you are a laborer, let's be aimed in the same direction. Let's make sure that the church is found to be attractive because when the church is found to be attractive, it draws people here so that they can do what? They can meet our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as a church, we said it this morning already, and we'll say it even more. We do three things here as a church. We want you to find your place upward in Christ. We want you to find your place inward at the church. We want to find your place outward in the community. We believe that that is the three steps, three prongs, the DNA of what a beautiful church ought to look like. And you have a role to play, whether you are old, whether you are young. Whatever position of life that you are in, because that's what this passage is doing. It is taking all these different things and bringing them all back to that same thing. That in every way they'll make the teaching about our God and Savior attractive. And it bears to mention this morning that that is not necessarily the first word that your coworkers and your friends and the people in this community speak when they talk about the local church. But it ought to be. And so we look back, we look through this passage because what did we say? Ideas lead to choices and sound teaching leads to sound living. So Paul has presented some ideas here. Are you willing to make a choice this morning? Are you willing to make a choice to show integrity as a leader? Are you willing to make a choice to be trustworthy as a worker, as a laborer? Are you willing to make a choice as an older woman, as an older man, to, to say, you know what, I'm not going to just coast. I'm not going to skate through. I'm, I'm going to pour myself into these young people, as this passage has shown here, that desperately need, not just 2,000 years ago, today, desperately need you to pour into us. And there's something beautiful about celebrating birthdays and celebrating anniversaries of someone who has faithfully followed Christ year after year after year. But I'll tell you, as the younger generation, we long for you to be able to pour that into us. Because we want that legacy someday. So our responsibility as a church this morning, as Mario comes up, as we sing a song in closing, will be, are we attractive? Are we beautiful as a church? As a people, do we understand? Because what is the opposite? A leader who doesn't show integrity is, is vile to be around. A worker who is not trustworthy is useless to a company. And in the same way, a church that is not attractive is damaging to the cause of Christ. So dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for Paul and for Titus. And Lord, these words that were written many years ago, but they are so applicable to us today because your word is still alive. It is still active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So this morning, I pray, Lord, that it has hit home. There will be some here that need to make some choices, make some decisions based on this. They're going to be trustworthy. 
They're going to be men and women. They're going to be parents who have self-control. Or that we'd be a church and be a people that are attractive. God, we know you're at work. We see you at work in our lives. So this morning we pray that there will be some here today that have the guts to respond to you. That these choices, this, this decision to go out on the field, to be headed in the same direction, to know that there's a position to play, would not be something that's shrugged off today. Because too many people are off doing their own thing. And you've given us a very specific task to jump into this morning. So we thank you for that. Thank you for the challenge. Lord, we step up to it today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In just a moment, we'll stand and sing. I'll go to the back. And if any of you would like to talk about any of what we've seen here in Titus, if you're old, if you're young, if you're a leader, if you're a laborer, that's all of you this morning. I would love to talk to you about what God has to say from the book of Titus.